Peter Vincent's photography has defined the way many of us see Bonneville. I had to make a decision. Was I going to photograph or was I going to race? Was I going to photograph or was I going to build cars? And photography has been my ultimate passion my whole life. I chose photography. Welcome to What Moves You, a Speedway Motors podcast where we tell the stories behind the cars and the people who build and drive them. I'm Joe McCullough, and today Peter Vincent joins us. In a time when fine art photographers didn't believe that images of cars could be art, Peter's photography of American Hot Rods and Bonneville proved them wrong. He took his lessons from Ansel Adams and Brett Weston and has made a lasting impression on automotive photography. I was studying architecture in school. Architecture? Yeah. I went from mechanical engineering to architecture to art. Wow. (laughs) And uh, I picked up a popular photography that dealt with all black and white photographers. Right. Paul Strand and uh, Stiglitz and Adams and Weston and Wynn Bullock and I decided right then that afternoon that I was going to be a photographer. And so how old were you then? I was in my 20s. So what what was it about that that book and the those photographers? What was it that changed their the imagery, course of your life? Their imagery and uh, between the formalism and the beauty and the pure truth of black and white. I was hooked. I mean, I just, I just, I don't know. It's, it's one of those moments that just hits you. And you just go with it. Yeah. For that period on, I was almost finished with an architecture degree. So I finished that. And I jumped into photography. And I drove down to Carmel, spent some time down there, spent time and learned. I, I met Ansel Adams and Brett Weston and Morley Bear and Wynn Bullock and. Uh, I learned just by being around these people. And I have to ask, because you, you had mentioned those names in, in a previous conversation that we had. You don't just walk up to Ansel Adam, Adams and shake his hand and say, you know, hi, I want to learn photography photography from you. How did you pull that off? Uh, I took a workshop. Oh, okay. And I got to meet them all, and I got to know them all. And I had an aunt and uncle that lived in Monterey, so I was able to stay there for a while. And uh, I just kind of hung around and, you know, just learned what I could by being around people. The other important ingredient to our, certainly our conversation here is cars. How, how did that all get started for you? <laughs> I grew up in California. That's, was, that's all there is to it. <laughs> I was standing on a corner in the fifth grade and it chopped, dropped half-finished Merc pulled up to the corner. Mm -hmm. And it just blew my mind. It just (laughs) blew me away. I mean, I, 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 this, this is, this is, you're talking 1955. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen one before. We just moved from Chicago. And, uh, God, I took a look at that thing and I said, wow, (laughs) it's got everything in it that I am interested in. And, I became, I, I was, I was raised, I, I became a gearhead. I've raced cars and, uh, I've been around cars and bikes all my life. So it all, it melded and trying to get the two to work together, the photography and the automotive stuff to work together was everybody kept telling me that, uh, you can't do fine art photography of cars. It's just like anything else. It's like photographing a landscape. You know, it's it's just got an item in it. And if you work it right, it's a formalistic photograph. I suppose you could make a, an argument that a, a chopped Merc, you know, where you've made design decisions to make the car look the way that you want it to, isn't a whole lot different than some of the other stuff that you're talking about seeing in architecture or in a photographic print. Exactly. Well, this Merc pulled up next to the uh, to the intersection, and I was on traffic, junior traffic patrol, and uh, it had a chop top on it. You couldn't see the driver. Mm-hmm. 
It was lowered right it's down on the ground. It had primer spots all over it where the headlights had been Frenched and had been nosed and decked and the bumper was smooth on the front and it had no grill. And it was just it was just cool. Had Olds Fiesta hubcaps and uh, lake pipes. <laughs> and I just I went nuts with it. And the the idea, I'll tell you what really attracted me to it. It was in the act of creation. Uh-huh. Now a finished fifty-one Merc convertible. It was a well-known show car pulled up the next week. And it didn't it didn't it didn't affect me as much as this forty-nine Merc. Mm-hmm. Because it was finished. It was completely done. Had a Carson top chopped candy apple red lowered you know it's a show car Mm -hmm. but it's done i love the act of creation i think that there are a lot of car builders who can really relate to that and i can relate to it from i went to art school and i was trying in my drawing classes to make these really pristine i was drawing with a mechanical pencil and i'll never forget when one of my professors walked over pulled the pencil out of my hand and handed me a lump of charcoal and she said, I want to see signs of a struggle here. I don't want to see a perfected finished drawing. And that's, I've always remembered that. And I've applied that to some of the cars that I've built since then. And that there's, in a lot of them, there's really signs of a struggle. Well, that's the same thing I learned in architecture, doing architectural drawings. I was using rapidograph pens to really fine line everything. And uh, finally, I switched to pencil and started sketching in areas and stuff. And Boy, I tell you, it just it changed my viewpoint about architecture. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've learned from everything. Everything that I've ever been through in my life has become part of my artwork. The architecture was a big three-dimensional training period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved it. I love architecture to this day. But the art of architecture, I don't like cinder block jailhouse buildings and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stuff like that, but stuff that has some creativity in it. Well, so how did you, you talked about getting some pushback when you started trying to combine the cars and the, the fine art. Do you remember when did it occur to you that that was something <laughs> that you were going to do and then what happened? Yeah, I remember distinctly. I had friends of mine who were fine art photographers saying, you can't photograph cars and make them fine art. You can photograph anything. If you can photograph a building and make it fine art Mm -hmm. first, why can't you photograph a car? A car is just a car. It's a form. And uh, I got into some arguments with people about it and, uh, you know, non-formal arguments. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I proved them uh, what I think is wrong. Okay. What was your first published photo book? I think it was called The American Hot Rod. Okay, so that's the one that I remember. That's the one that I remember picking up when I was first getting into hot rods 20 or so years ago, picking up that book and just having my mind blown by the the cars and the way that they were photographed because that was at the time when I was also in art school. So how, how did that book come to be what was the genesis of that project i kept talking to publishers i mean the whole secret is to finally get somebody who will take care of the publishing mm-hmm. i mean to do a book is an expensive venture it's a fifty thousand dollar venture to have it printed and bound and all that sort of stuff and uh, i start talking to somebody at motor books international and uh, i send them a lot of my work and they realized I dealt with a guy back there that realized what I was doing was beyond magazine work. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave me a $10,000 advance on that book to work on it. And I was, I was just blown away. <laughs> I can't tell you how much that meant. It validated so much in my life that, uh, I just took off and I just said, the hell with it. Let's just do this. So had you already started taking some of those photos that appeared in the book? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I had. I've been going to Bonneville and I've been visiting car gatherings on the West Coast, which I got tired of really fast. Uh-huh. I met a group of people, hot rodders that were down in L.A. that were all 60s hot rodders. In fact, the cover of my second book is Billy Venter's 34 Ford, mm-hmm. orange 34 Ford. And uh, that's an incredible, it's an incredible car. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's dialed in and I've ridden down the freeway in it. And, uh, well, I tell you, there's nothing like riding in a car like that compared to all the other regular cars on the road. And you're talking about a pretty famous car. And, you know, that's kind of the thing yeah. with that book is that a lot of those cars were really well-known legendary hot rods that then you were sort of pre- presenting in this fine art context. Yes. Yes. And I got to know Billy Venter and Cal Tanaka and all the people down in L.A. through that. So it was sort of through your, your photography then that you sort of made your way into that scene? Yeah. And through my appreciation of hot rods, I look at the aesthetic of something. I bought a bike on eBay just because of the aesthetic of the bike. Mm -hmm. I bought it because I thought it was an art piece. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I come from is if I buy something, it's an art piece. But it's functional. And I rode the hell out of it. Yeah. And uh, I ended up having somebody offer me a lot more than I paid for it to buy it. And I needed money at the time, so I sold it. Mm -hmm. And then he completely redid it. He turned it into something that I I looked at and he said, it's not what it was. Yeah. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't have that doesn't have that gritty on the edge look. Yeah. I mean, he smoothed it out, turned it into a real pretty bike. I think that that's one of the things that, you know, when I was looking at that, at that book, I was still kind of figuring out what a hot rod meant. And an awful lot of those cars in that book are kind of have that aesthetic that you're describing, you know, kind of bare bones, you know, just full tilt hot rods with nothing there that doesn't need to be there. And that really kind of informed then my idea of what a, a, what a hot rod meant. And I'm I'm trying to remember were were the first two Rolling Bones coupes in that book? No, they were in the second. Okay, okay. Somewhere around that time, you met Ken and Keith, the Rolling Bones guys. How did you yeah, How did you get to know them? I had a, I had a a shoot set up with uh, Mark Morton when he was uh, running Hop Up Magazine, mm-hmm. and we had coops out on the desert of El Mirage and Ken and Keith drove all the way out from New York to be part of that shoot really and I was just I was blown away I I mean I was I was really impressed they drove all the way out and you're talking about cars with no mufflers no side windows yeah (laughs) so those are pretty famous cars but you should for listeners who aren't familiar you should describe what those first two coupes were like well you're talking about ultra chopped louvered tops louvered hoods no fenders bias ply tires quick change rear ends uh, T5 usually 5 speed transmissions out of a Chevy Mm -hmm. so you could do highway travel and all running flatheads and you could cruise in those things at 75 miles an hour mm-hmm. with the overdrive and they were noisy as hell there were no <laughs> side windows you're sitting in one seat you've got a windshield and that's the only window in the car and uh, I, I i just i i was impressed i was impressed boy i tell you they made a statement and they had just come off of, you're saying they drove from New York to El Mirage, yeah. cross, cross country. How many miles is that? What's five day drive? Yeah. Yeah. And they pulled into El Mirage right from that trip and uh, pulled out on the, on the sand and uh, we included them in the shoot. And the shoot became a famous shot of eight coupes 
mm-hmm. ate 32 coupes on the on the El Mirage lats, and it was a cover of Hop Up, and I sold many prints of it, stuff like that, and it it, it it's it's what borders on art and a happening and a scene, and it's still edgy. Mm-hmm. It's still not glossed over, finished, completely dialed in show car type stuff. I mean, these cars were in primer and, mm-hmm. you know, they were not finished. I drove one across country. Believe me, you had to drive. Them. So that's another thing. So I'm going to here as we're recording this, it's, it's August 1st. And just this morning, those guys came through on their way to Bonneville, and we happened to be here in Lincoln right off of Interstate 80. And so I caught a tip that they were on their way through, and I positioned myself there alongside the interstate so that I could intercept them. And, you know, I've seen them going down the road before, but there is something about seeing these ultra-chopped, wicked, traditional 32 Fords, and, you know, they had some other guys with them with 40 Ford Coupes and, and other things. But something about seeing those going down the interstate that I don't care how many times you see it, it makes your heart race. Well, the, you're talking about primered cars. You're not talking about show cars. Yeah. They're loud. They have straight pipes. They've got quick change rear ends. I mean, these, these cars were really something. I mean, I was, I was quite blown away by them. They were, they were so raw and unfinished that I loved them. So how did you get to be to fall in with those guys to the point that they were letting you drive cross country with them? Because they came all the way out to California to take part of a shoot I was doing. And I just got to know them. I said, I, I respect what you guys did. I understand what you did because I've, I've driven these things enough to know what it's like yeah. to drive cross country. I made times where I flew back to New York and drove out with them to Bonneville. Mm-hmm. And uh, Keith turned his car into a race car. And Ken's car was the one I drove. And uh, it was it was just fascinating. The only thing he didn't have is he didn't have any rear view mirrors. And it's chopped like six inches, which in a 32-3 window is just an insane amount. Uh, oh, and- yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and you're driving on a freeway, and you're trying to change lanes, and you can't <laughs> see anything. So I bought two peak mirrors to hang on the front the front doors of that car, so I could see down the side windows, so I could drive in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, he took them off as soon. Oh yeah. As soon as I got there, he said he didn't like them. <laughs> And I said, well, look, uh, i tell you what, they saved my ass a couple of times, so they were worth it. And and those guys, they built good cars. You had to drive them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't, uh, they didn't drive. If you take a car driven, uh, crafted by Pete Eastwood versus the Rolling Bones back there, Pete Eastwood's car, you could take your hand off the wheel and it would go straight down the road. Mm-hmm. These cars had bump steer and all kinds of stuff in them. You had to drive them. You had to keep your hand on the wheel all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it kind of added to the mystique of having being in those cars and driving them. Yeah. And oh yeah. Pop, pop, you're sitting way down low, and there was a little hole where the uh, windshield wiper <laughs> was supposed to be put. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would look through to look at the traffic light to see if I could go. <laughs> About 30 years ago, Peter Vincent went to Bonneville for the first time, camera in hand. The photographs he captured have become iconic images of some of the most famous hot rods and race cars in the world. You're responsible for a lot of the famous photos of those cars that we're all familiar with at Bonneville. And that makes me wonder, when was the first time you went to Bonneville? Oh, boy. Or oh, you're asking for a memory thing. <laughs> <laughs> I would say 1989, 1990, 1991, sometime around then. Okay. Do, do you remember 
if you don't remember the year, you have to remember the sort of the moment that you stepped out onto the salt for the first time, right? Oh, yeah. I remember the moment. I was driving a lowered Camaro <laughs> with louvers in the hood and uh, slammed in the front, and it was low in the back. And it was a 71 Rally Sport with a fairly potent engine in it and everything. It was not a hot rod. It was, mm-hmm. it was more of a Trans Am-type car. And the first people I met at Bonneville were Dennis and Debbie Kyle and their 32 Ford that they, their license plate says Stroker. Mm -hmm. It's an orange 32 Ford Roadster that is just unbelievably beautiful. I mean, also a pretty famous car. Also a pretty famous car. And they pulled up next to me because they liked the Camaro. (laughs) And that's where I met them. You know, I just started meeting people and just uh, from one person went to the other. It turns out he knew Billy Venter and Paul Boz and Danny Brewer and a lot of guys down on the West Coast and Cal Tanaka. I mean, he was friends with all these guys. So we ended up getting together with all these guys and, uh, you know, for dinner. And uh, (laughs) you're talking about some guys that lived on the edge. But I'll tell you what, uh, you get Lucky Fred and Cal Tanaka together, and if they're drinking beer, <laughs> you're going to have a hell of a night. <laughs> <laughs> Cal Tanaka's 33 coupe, that black three-window, mm-hmm. I mean, that's dropped so low, the front end's been banged on the pavement, stuff like that, and it's uh, it's been kind of fixed and stuff like that, but it's a beautiful car. It's an incredible car. It's a real hard run. Mm-hmm. What made you want to go to Bonneville in the first place? Other than just the, the, was it just the reverence for the place and wanting to check it out? Bonneville to me was like the absolute background. Oh yeah. There's, it's hard to take a bad photograph of Bonneville. Well, it's minimalist yeah. and uh, you don't have anything appearing with what you want to photograph. And yet it's all part of it. And uh, I loved it out there. I photographed for Bonneville. I photographed at Bonneville for 25 years. It was the foundation of hot rodding. Mm -hmm. The dry lakes were the foundation. That's what started hot rodding down in California. And so I went to Bonneville. And I got to meet a lot of people out there. I met people that raced the very first race at El Mirage. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the Giovanni, Bob Giovanni, and uh, his 23 Model T Roadster. And he had the same four-banger Chevy engine in it with a handmade overhead valve head mm-hmm. that he ran early. And he, he broke some records. He kept bumping up the fuel mixture until he hit over 150 miles an hour in a four-banger Chevy. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to know these people, and uh, they're wonderful people. I photographed them and uh, photographed Bob Giovanni as last year he was out there. He was 80-something years old, and uh, and I got to know Ron Jolliffe, who was racing a 49 Olds yeah. fastback out there with a big block Olds in it, and uh, I got to drive that car. And uh, I'll tell you, it, that that fastback, it lifts the whole back of the car up. Oh, you actually made a pass at Bonneville in it? Oh, yeah. I've oh, driven geez. a couple of cars out there. Well, so so we have to – I didn't know that about you. That That's something that, that is on a lot of people's bucket lists. You have to talk about it. What, what's it like to actually make a, make a pass? In- it's the most intense, focused, calm – I've ever been through in my life. <laughs> you just you just drive, and all of a sudden you realize you're one with the car. You're hearing the loud motor. You're trying to keep it, and if it's a good car, it's tracking beautifully, and it's you just keep building up speed, and uh, you don't worry about anything. You're you're focused. Mm-hmm. It's in focus. It's be- it's it's wonderful. So I got the, the car about 150 miles an hour, and 
some people had taken pictures were realizing the back end was starting to lift off the ground. <laughs> so he, he put a wing on the back that held it down. Uh-huh. He also changed his class, which means he couldn't get a record in his class. It put him into altered class, but it uh, made the car safe to drive. And the only other car I've driven out there was a twin-turbo Nissan. <laughs> and this was a lowered, six-speed, twin-turbo Nissan with lead all the way through the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, about 180 miles an hour, started getting loose. <laughs> and that, I'll tell you what, that squeezes your cheeks together. <laughs> And it makes you, all of a sudden, your beautiful, intense focus is gone. You have to control everything, and I never spun it because they told me what to do if it if it got out of control was to slowly let off on it. Mm-hmm. But when I got back in it, to get back in it very slowly because it had a twin-turbo engine in it. And twin turbos, when they wind up at about 6,000, 7,000 RPM, really start pumping out horsepower. Mm-hmm. And they would spin the rear wheels. And if you're spinning the rear wheels at 180 miles an hour, you're going to, you're going to turn around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was, it was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved riding out there. I got hooked on it, but I had the, I had to make a decision. Was I going to photograph or was I going to race? Mm-hmm. Was I going to, was I going to photograph or was I going to build cars? And photography has been my ultimate passion my whole life. And, uh, I chose photography. In 1991, Al Teague set a record at Bonneville in a streamliner that he had built himself, breaking the golden rods record that had stood for 26 years it's a legendary moment in hot rod history, and Peter was there to see it happen. In 1991, I was at Bonneville when Al Teague ran with a single V8 fuel Chrysler Hemi engine and a streamliner that was just beautiful. That he built in his mom's garage. <laughs> that he built in his mom's garage. And I tell you what, I've got a lot of respect for Al Teague. Oh, yeah. You and me both. I've got a lot of respect for a lot of the early people out there that did a lot of their own work. And what I don't have a lot of respect for, well, I respect what they did, but the millionaires that had 400 mile an hour cars built by somebody else, they'd go out there 400 miles an hour and whoopee. Uh, LT 432 miles an hour with a single V8 engine. I mean, everybody in the pit when he went by stopped <laughs> and turned around and watched him make a pass. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a single person working on anything and I was there for it. And I, I just, I, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the sound of it. Top fuel motor. <laughs> yeah. And the sound bounces off the salt and Jesus, that thing was beautiful. And to go 432 miles an hour is, you're up there in dangerous territory. Oh, yeah. As soon as you go over 175 miles an hour, you, you better be real careful because the wind mm-hmm. there takes place. I mean, I saw a Firebird that had been built by uh, Gale Banks with twin turbos. And he took it, and they got up to 220 miles an hour, and the back end just came up off the ground mm-hmm. and pirouetted and uh, came back down again. And I've watched a lot of cars do that out there. And the wind it, above 175 miles an hour, really, you need to have the aerodynamics dead on. Yeah. I haven't been to Bonneville since 2016. I took I bought the 15-ounce race car, mm-hmm. 15-ounce coupe, and took it out to Bonneville. I was there. I saw it. Well, it took me three years to get it out on the salt. <laughs> okay, so when I saw it, it was parked at the Nugget in the parking lot. So I must not have been there the year that you actually rolled it out. Yeah, that was 2014 and 2015. Okay. 
And then 2016, it finally dried out enough to take it out on the trailer, unload it, shoot it into sunset. <laughs> and uh, how did that feel? I mean, that's a, you have this legendary fuel coop with, I mean, and again, if you don't know what we're talking about, a big gnarly chop on a 30, 34, 33. It's actually on a 33 frame, but it's got a 34 grill on it. Okay. And uh, it had a Hemi in it. I had the pipes sticking out the side, and I had a hell of a time getting it on and off the trailer with that. <laughs> and uh, I had to do special ramps just to be able to unload it and load it and get a 10,000-pound winch that would pull it over the ramps. And... Uh, I loved having it out there. I called it Slicks on the Salt. I mean, it was not a Bonneville car. It was a total drag car. It was just oh, yeah. it was a, it was a top fuel coupe. So how did that feel to have your own historic drag car out there on the salt running under its I own power? It. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I really had a lot of fun photographing it. And, uh, you know, loaded it back on the trailer, and I was very careful to keep the salt off because, God, it had magnesium wheels mm -hmm. and all magnesium underneath it. And uh, magnesium and salt is just a no-no. Oh, you yeah. don't mix them. The salt rots the magnesium right away. And I had a great time. I was so happy to get it out on the salt that... Uh, I just took it out there and photographed it, and I brought it out the next day and photographed it in midday, and that was it. Took it, put put it back on the trailer, and took it back into uh, Wendover, and uh, went back up to northern Idaho and took it home. To see some of Peter's amazing photography, visit the toolbox at speedwaymotors.com by clicking the toolbox link on the front page. New episodes of What Moves You come out every two weeks on Tuesdays. If you like what you hear, tell a friend to listen to What Moves You on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Peter made his name turning hot rod photography into art, then collecting those images into books. Printing in books made his high-quality photographs widely accessible and changed the way many of us looked at hot rods and their builders. We talked about that first book, but you've done how many books did you say? Five. So what what came next then after that first American Hot Rod book? The first American Hot Rod book was uh, Hot Rods by Peter Vincent. And that was the one that had Billy Venter's car on the cover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I did a book called Hot Rod Garages that went to all these different hot rodders where they actually built the cars. I mean, these are real builders. And uh, everything from Roy Brizio to Pete Eastwood to uh, the Rolling Bones to a Bob Lick in Oregon who built cars in a garage. You know, he had a shop. And it, it just you just got to know these people, and they had passions. And uh, you got into their passions. And they all built cars that you just died for. I mean, they were really cool cars. They had all the right looks. They were a little bit edgy. They weren't show cars. In fact, Bob Lick used to drive his 44 in the drag races. And he built his uh -huh. car up, ran a big block in it with a different front end on it and everything. And uh, he finally got loose in the track and bumped a rear fender and gave up racing and primed the rear fender and turned it back into a street car. And it's still the same. It's a yellow 44 just slammed on the ground. That's running. I've driven it and it, it runs beautifully on the highway. And Bob Lick, an original, he's an original hot rodder. Isn't there a picture in that book in the hot rod garages book of that thing with a primered fender from that little drag strip? Book? Yes. Yeah. There so, is. So that book, I, I, I have that book. And I it's interesting because it's the photography isn't just of the cars. It's of the people and their cars and their space. It, how do you how do you approach that when you're trying to sort of capture more than just a car at Bonneville? You're trying to capture the, the people with the car. 
I try and capture the environment in which they create. And it's, it's where they do their building. It's where they decide what to do to the car. And uh, if I can get into their shop, I can see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And you see these people build cars and you see what they finish with. And it's their ideas that carry the cars through. And I met some, I mean, I photographed Roy Brizio, who was really well-known builder on the West Coast mm-hmm. and photographed his shop. And it's included in the garage book. And it's completely different than a guy with a 44 in his garage that he redoes. And uh, Brizio was more into show cars and stuff like that. But he built some beautiful cars. Had a lot of respect for him. Mm-hmm. He built cars that really worked. He treated people really fairly. And uh, that's the ultimate. I mean, you get a car, one of those cars out on the road, if they steer wrong or go weird or something like that, you're in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. So somebody's got to know what they're doing when they put them together. And uh, all the people I photographed for that book, from Dick Page to Dale Withers to Bob Lick, to Pete Eastwood, to Roy Brizio. I mean, all these people I'd met at Bonneville and in the Hot Rod community. And uh, I had a lot of fun. I, I, I got to meet some great people. I mean, I, uh, I don't regret the time I spent on it at all. And I miss it. Which one of your Hot Rod photo books is your favorite? The Bonneville book. Okay, and, and describe that, because that one's a little bit different than some of the others, right? A little bit different, because I learned about Bonneville by going there every year. And uh, it mixed race cars with hot rods that went to Bonneville. Mm-hmm. And these are people who weren't afraid to drive it out on the salt and... Uh, most of the people I knew down in L.A. would never take their cars out to Bonneville because of salt damage. And I shouldn't have. I took the <laughs> car out there, and I had to completely rebuild it. <laughs> yeah. Because it rained while we were out there. And oh, yeah. You're sitting in six inches of water. Of salt water. <laughs> yeah, salt water. You've got to drive out. Yeah. Well, I drove out, you hit 12 inches of water in the dip just before you hit the pavement. And my fan blades in the lowered Camaro caught the water, sent the water out the the louvers in the hood, (laughs) and covered the engine with salt. And I uh, went back and I drove into town, and uh, I drove out by the wash facility. They had one wash place for Mm -hmm. cars and Wendover, and they had a line that was uh, three miles long, oh, so yeah. I just drove back to the hotel and parked the car and, you know, said I'll get it the next morning, and uh, God, I lifted the hood the next morning, and it was just all white, mm-hmm. and uh, I screwed up a good Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a great story to tell. Yeah, it was, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I got pictures of it out there, and uh, I rebuilt the car completely. Brakes, clutch, drivetrain, body, you name it. It's completely redone. And uh, I learned a lot about Trans Am racing in the meantime. Mm -hmm. I learned what to do the suspension to make that thing track. Mm Mm-hmm. And essentially, you lower the front end a little bit, and you put a huge sway bar on it, and a huge sway bar on the back end, to which I had to weld in half-inch plates to hold the sway bar steady, because mm-hmm. it pulled out the trunk. The first corner I went around, it just snapped right out of the trunk. It just pulled the bolts through the trunk. Mm-hmm. So, but you had to have good solid steel back there. And eight inch wheels in the back and seven inch in the front and lowered down and sticky rubber. 
and pause attraction and uh, lots of power. Doug Nash, five speed and uh, scatter shield and all that sort of stuff and auto meter gauges and the dash. And uh, he had a race car. When asked about his favorite car that he's had, Peter gave a surprising answer. Instead of the legendary 15-ounce fuel coupe, he told a story about his beloved Camaro. God, I had fun. I mean, it was a fun car to drive. I mean, you could drive it like a race car. I put what I learned from this race car builder was you find a WS6 SD Trans Am. Mm -hmm. Now, the guy who built race cars down in Monterey was the guy who designed that car. And it had special steering box in it, special sway bars, and a few other things that were that made the thing right. So I found a WS6 SD Trans Am and told, pulled out the steering box, pulled off the sway bars, and uh, lowered the Camaro down and made it raceable. Mm-hmm. You could take that car out and you could race it. And I put two great big European driving lights in the grill. Oh, yeah. Which just made the thing. I mean, they were illegal as hell. But boy, <laughs> and they would, they would light up the highway. I mean, yeah. these, were, these were real European rally lights. They were seven inches across. And uh, boy, I tell you, I, I, I had a rally sport, so they fit in the grill perfectly. Mm-hmm. I have the only Camaro of 71, 70 vintage that had louvers in the hood. Mm -hmm. I split the hood and louvered the hood when I was down in Colorado. Yeah. You know, it's kind of half hot rod and half race car. Yeah. And I, I love that car. So, so looking back on, you know, you've mentioned several, what is your favorite car that you've ever owned? The Camaro. Really? Yeah. I had that car longer than any car I've ever owned. <laughs> I bought it uh, before my son was born, and my son now owns it. Oh, really? Yeah, he's he's 40 years old, and he has the car parked in a garage, and I sold it to him. I He grew up with it. He grew up in it. He grew up with it changing, and uh, I was going to sell it, and I had it, you know, it was worth quite a bit of money because of what was in it. Mm -hmm. And I called up my son and I said, look, do you want the Camaro? And he said, God, yes. And I said, okay, you get it for half price. Oh, that's cool. He would have owned it if he'd helped me build it, but he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it was, and he, he paid for it. He's still paying for it. I gave him, uh, you know, a long time to pay. He just right. paid me a month. And uh, he's got a car, essentially, that is uh, quite a build-up car. I thought for sure you were going to say the, the fuel coupe, but that I, I had no idea that it was still kind of in the family. That's a, cool, that's a cool story. No, the Camaro was the car I really loved. To drive that thing, you could corner flat in it and drift. How long did you have it? I had it from 1979 to uh, when I sold it to my son in the late 90s. Okay. Or in the early 2000s. I can't remember when exactly. But I love driving that car. You get that car out on the road. And uh, so low on the front end, I had to put a skid plate underneath the front cross. <laughs> So what are your son's plans to do with it? Can it, like, is it running the way that it is now? Yeah, it starts and runs. <laughs> yeah, he's got a car that's, uh, to me, probably one of the greatest cars I ever owned. <laughs> I mean, the 15-ounce fuel coupe was great, but I never drove it. It was just an icon. It was an art piece. Mm -hmm. And it was beautiful, and... Uh, I saw the 44-second video of it running with a 4,500-horse, 95% fuel motor in it. Mm -hmm. And it never made a full pass, but boy, I'll tell you, 
<laughs> it's an angry looking car. Mm-hmm. Is that where it's at now? It's at it's been finished with the big fuel at motor. No, a friend of mine up in Canada owns it. Okay, and the reason he owns it is because he told me he wouldn't he wouldn't screw with it. Oh, okay. He wouldn't change the paint. He wouldn't try and turn it into a street rod, and he would keep it the way it was. Mm-hmm. Peter has been photographing for decades, and his career has overlapped with some huge advancements in cameras and digital photography. Do you have any plans to do any more automotive photography? Oh, yeah, certainly, if I, if I, if I get around to it. But I'm, I'm 77 years old, so I don't know how long things are going to last. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm going with the things as long as they go. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying life, and uh, I've got an old Harley chopper out in the garage. It's a beautiful chopper. I mean, it's a hardtail. It's a chopper bobber. It's got a wide light front end on it. It's about three inches off the ground. <laughs> It's got a headlight and a taillight and two rear view mirrors, and that's it. <laughs> and uh, it's all painted red oxide. Uh, I have a rear fender and a tank, and the rest of it's just uh, chrome and engine and frame painted black. So it's it's a nice bike. The profile's really nice. Do you still feel, looking through the viewfinder on the camera, do you still feel that same excitement that, got you into doing photography all those years ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm still doing a lot. And I'll I'll tell you, the weird thing about it is I'm using a phone. Oh, yeah. I mean, the phones are better than the first digital cameras I had. Do you still shoot film? Occasionally. I have a place up in... uh, Seattle that sells film and uh, will process film. Mm -hmm. And I have a a super high-level scanner. It's an Imacon scanner. It's a Danish scanner that's uh, got its around it. If you bought it new, it'd be like $25,000. And it scans up to uh, 48, 49 with 50 being the perfect number of being able to catch all the tones and the lower mm-hmm. values for values. And so the scale of it is just incredible and you can dial it up and you can do 40 inch, 50 inch, 60 inch prints from it mm-hmm. off a two and a quarter inch negative. And it's, a, it's an incredible scanner and it's, it's, it's digital printing, but you know, uh, Silver printing still means a lot to me, but it's getting to be a real headache. Yeah. Do you have, when I was studying art and photography, my professor was very straight, old school, film only photography. And his name was Dave Reed, the University of Nebraska. And he carried his Leica M5 over his shoulder every day. And, um, he was, he was very, very passionate about what he did. And he remains one of my favorite professors that I ever had. Well, you know, I remember the name and I mean, he was, he was pretty well known and he, he sort of indoctrinated us with this idea that because digital was just sort of coming on the scene at the time. And there was this sort of idea that when you're shooting on film, you're capturing a moment and that that moment is physically recorded through the chemical reaction of the light hitting the, the negative and so on. And digital just didn't hold that same romance for him. It was it was turning that moment where the light hit the sensor into a bunch of little digital bleeps and bloops. And and that was a really fundamental difference for him. Do you well, still feel I, that? I agree with <laughs> And I'll tell you the truth. My uh, silver images and negatives, which I have uh, transparencies and stuff downstairs, I have a ton of them but I've got a scanner that will convert them to digital printing. And I use this and I digitally print them. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm coming off, it took me two years to learn how to do black and white. Yeah. 
because it's the hardest one to photograph in a digital and it's actually a four color black and white mm-hmm. you mix you mix and match the tones going into it and you added just enough of this and just enough of that to make it work and peter delore and i were bouncing back and forth talking about how are we going to get these things to look like silver prints how are we going to get them to match a silver image and we finally got it. And can that process, do, is that visible in any of these automotive books that we're talking about? Uh, God, I'm trying to think. By the time I got to the Rolling Bones book, I was probably using digital. Okay. And uh, digital, to me made everybody a photographer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, it, it's okay. I don't, you know, it's, it's no big deal, but it, it is a big deal because I could no longer make a living off doing photography. Do you, as someone who has spent your life taking photographs, do you worry about what that means for the future? <sighs> That's a very <laughs> that's a very good question. And I'll have to tell you no. Because the images that were important as silver images back when are still important as silver images. And the ones that are digital images, if you've learned how to adapt your digital imagery to how you took your silver imagery they're valuable prints they're good prints thanks to peter vincent for being our guest today and thanks to all of you for listening to what moves you a speedway motors podcast find the pictures we talked about on the toolbox at speedwaymotors.com email the podcast at podcast at speedwaymotors.com and if you like what you heard tell a friend where to find us Thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.